Welcome to Books for Good Trouble, a San Diego Public Library podcast. Liz Huerta is a San Diego author specializing in the young adult fantasy genre. Her new book, The Lost Dreamer, is a psychedelic drama that defies expectations. When I arrived in dreaming, I arrived to a dance. Drum beats filled the air, a heavy rhythm that resonated in every aspect of the dream. It pounded in me as if I were a part of it. Around me, spirits in a dizzying array of shapes writhed their bodies. I marveled at spirits shaped like large birds with long, wide feathers that changed colors on beat to the drums. Jaguar-spotted spirits shaped like women leaped back and forth over my head while colorful, hairless dogs danced a serpentine dance starting between my legs. I gasped when I saw a spider-shaped spirit shoot a golden thread out from her body into the sky. Several spirits began climbing the thread, spinning around and around, howling. I had never seen anything like it before. I couldn't stop myself from joining. I lifted my arms above my head and spun around, feeling sparks against me whenever I brushed up against a spirit. Flowers bloomed around my feet as I danced, opening their wide faces to the night and releasing a heady scent that made me want more. Above us, the comet shone in the sky, higher than it appeared in the waking world. I wanted more, though of what, I couldn't name. The drumbeats intensified, and so did our movements. Soon we moved as one, rising and falling, rising and falling. The scents grew stronger. I smelled earth, rain, smoke, ocean salt. The air tasted sweet in my mouth. I opened for more. Dreamers never dance with us or even notice us, a voice whispered in my ear. I spun around to see a mass of dancing lights. I blink and moved back a few steps, the lights following. We're happy to have you here. We've been waiting for you. I dipped my head in gratitude. I've been waiting for something. Is this it? I asked. This is part of it, but you should probably move somewhere else in the dream. This place is one of temptation, and you have no training, the lights said. Training? I stopped dancing, head spinning while others whirled around us. Are dreamers trained in Alcanza? Yes, which is why they can't go the places you can. They trained it out of themselves. The lights blinked on and off. I watched the way they shone. They seemed to glow softly on the edges of memory and somehow brightly on possibility. I was drawn to them in a way that felt enticing and dangerous. I couldn't look away. I didn't want to. Go now, dreamer. Go where you were called. The lights moved until they surrounded my head, my throat, my heart, spinning around and around until I couldn't even remember my own name. And then they were gone and I was alone. It's like the 
Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, but Mesoamerican and very feminist. The Lost Dream is a story of two young women who are born with the same gift, the ability to enter a different dimension when they go to sleep called the dream and to bring back information for their communities. My name is Liz Huerta. I am a queer working class Mexican writer from the borderlands of Southern California, and I'm the author of The Lost Dreamer, which is a Mesoamerican-inspired young adult fantasy novel. One of my protagonists is born in the sacred city of Alcanza into a lineage of dreamers where their gift is supported by the culture, by the society, but they're threatened by a new king coming in who wants to destroy the dreamers. My other protagonist, Saya, is born, um, as I say, in the wild, and her gift is a secret, and it is used by her mother, who's quite abusive, and There's a prophecy in this world about someone called the Lost Dreamer who will either save or destroy the world. And through the dual narrative of the book, we're trying to figure out which one of these two characters is the Lost Dreamer and how their stories are connected. I wanted to write a book that had kind of the essence and the, for lack of a better word, flavor of pre-colonial Mesoamerica, my kind of Mayan cultures, Aztec-ish, Olmec, even though we don't know a lot of them, kind of have that feeling to it without taking anything directly from those cultures. So I did a little bit of research. I really loved the book 1491 which is about pre-contact Americas. And then I was kind of let go. I was like, you know what, Liz, go into your imaginings, go into your imagination. And I decided to call it Ancestrally Informed Imaginings. I noticed when I was reading the book, there were some pretty major psychedelic elements and themes. And I've noticed in popular culture, people are looking at traditional medicines and ritual plants, such as psilocybin and ayahuasca under a new light. Can you talk about the psychedelic aspects that are in the book? Yeah, I think that those kind of plant medicines have always existed, and they've been used very specifically within context. One of my characters has not the greatest experience with one of those substances in the book and it's pretty traumatic. She has a bad trip, essentially. She has a really bad trip. Um, So I felt so bad for her and I was like, well, this is real. But that does exist. And those plants and medicines and substances have been used as a gateway to explore, you know, whether it's other dimensions or aspects of our own consciousness or collective consciousness. And I wanted to put that in there because it's real. It exists to this day. Is there like a meditation inspiration behind the dream itself? Oh, absolutely. I have a really long meditation practice. I've been meditating over 20 years and meditation is part of my writing practice where before I would write, I would go into a meditation and talk to the book and talk to the characters and say, um, what do you want me to say? Um, I accept what chooses to come through me. And I think after having such a long meditation practice, it's easy, well, not easy, easy is the wrong word, but it's there's an ability to enter those different kind of spaces that can be because they have such a long practice. 
And there have been times where I just am in a meditative state where I feel like I'm in the dream and I'm in other dimensions. You know, recently, I think just a couple of days ago, they published these new pictures of space, right? Um, of deep space. And I'm like, oh, I've been there. I, I know exactly where we are. Yeah, I've been there in my meditation. Cool, you know. Why did you choose to not follow the trope of romance? I, I love the trope of romance. I love romantic love. It's phenomenal. It's wonderful. It's exciting. Um, and it's not the only type of love. And I think that as I've grown older, I personally have kind of decentralized romantic love in my own life. Um, I still love it. I still love being in relationships and all that jazz. And I've decided to really focus on other types of love, love between friends, you know, platonic love, community love, self-love, because those are equally as important as romantic love. And those are the loves that um, can sustain us when romantic love kind of goes off the rails or has shifted. And I just, you know, romantic love is wonderful. I love it. I think it's great. I'd love to have more of it in my life. And I know that my greatest love stories as of right now are with my friends and with my community. Um, and that wasn't always the case. And I think because we're trained in the society that romantic love is like the pinnacle of all loves. And I wanted to kind of decolonize my mind from that and be like, no, there are other types of love that are just as valid and fulfilling. And I wanted to go into that. So tell me how you got started writing. I've been a storyteller since before I could write. My family is really big on stories. I have a really big Mexican and Puerto Rican family. So story has been a part of everything since I was a kid. I love to read. But even before I could write, I would tell stories. I would write stories, quote unquote, into my little Fisher-Price tape recorder and record them. And so I think my very first story I wrote is about a Pegasus unicorn. And I was about four years old, and I'm narrating it. And in the middle of the story, my baby sister comes up and bites me. And I start screaming and crying, and then I finish the story very quickly. But I've been writing ever since I was a kid. I have books that I wrote when I was a little, little girl. And I still have them, you know, from like second grade, third grade, all the way through. So I've been writing longer than I could physically write. I've always been a storyteller. Please tell me about maintaining your working class roots while simultaneously having a literary career. I think that one of the things that happens for people on the outside looking at artists is they often think, oh, they're published, they've made it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? They're blown up, they're rich, they, you know, all they have to do is be a writer and they're kind of otherworldly. Yeah, that would be nice. I was lucky where I did receive a pretty substantial advance for the books. There's two books in the duology. I'm working on the second one right now. So I, 
It was really interesting timing. I worked for my family business as a wrought iron painter for over 20 years, which gave me a lot of freedom to write and to take time off, to take off to research or travel or do the things I wanted to do. So there was a very particular privilege in having a family business. And it was work. I was outdoors painting for years, listening to audiobooks with my little notebook in my pocket. I sold my book right before pandemic started. So it was an incredible privilege to have that little cushion of my advance, to not have to work during pandemic and just be able to stay home, work on the book. And now that money is no longer around because, you know, it, it doesn't last. It's so I am, I'm, st- I'm still working. Um, I just did a job this week in La Jolla painting a bunch of iron. And I like it. I think there's something really satisfying for me about working with my body. Um, You know, exploitative labor is terrible, but I have this little job of painting iron and doing custom finishes and listening to audiobooks, and I can make pretty good money. I mean, I could probably make great money doing it, but I work the minimum amount to survive so that I can put all my energy into creating, because that's my priority. And I hope that at some point I will be able to be a full-time writer. Um, I'm not there quite yet, but I hope to be there one day. It's it's an it's a business. It's an industry industry like anything else. So it's rough, and there are sacrifices. Luckily, I'm you know I'm single. I don't have kids. I can just kind of focus on myself and live a very simple life, so that I can write as much as I want to. And work uh, construction as little as I want to. As a San Diego local and a person who's developed their career here in the region, what is San Diego's literary scene like? You know, I've taken a step back the last few years just because I wanted to really focus on the book. But I've been involved in the literary scene since I was a teenager, going to open mics. There were open mics at Lestat's, at Claire de Lune. In my early 20s, there was a space that opened up called Voz Alta, which was a Chicano-Latino literary art space. And I actually started a writing group there and an open mic. And then I got involved at San Diego Writers, Inc., which is a nonprofit that hosts a lot of writing workshops. And then through San Diego Writers, Inc., I got involved with So Say We All, which is a monthly storytelling workshop. So there is a literary scene. You kind of have to look for it. But once you're in it, it's pretty solid. I would say specifically, So Say We All has done really well with their, not just their monthly vamp event, which is at the Whistle Stop Bar, but with workshops they offer for storytelling and building. And just meeting that community has been really cool and supportive. And I've met really great friends through there. So, I mean, you have to dig for it, but it's there. And we also have a really cool indie bookstore scene. That's great, too, to, you know, go to all these bookstores and know the bookstore owners and they remember you and they know what kind of books you like. I, And now to be on the other side as an author, to go in there is just really cool and be like, oh, my book's on the shelf. And I've been shopping here for, you know, 10, 15 years. I, it's, it's the coolest feeling in the world. I landed near a body of water, dizzy, 
the comet saying in the sky, I called out a greeting, and a few bird-shaped spirits rose out of the water and floated toward me. I remembered why I was there. Batuk the traitor, will he arrive soon? I asked. The three spirits towered over me. Tomorrow is soon enough, they crowned in unison. I nodded while inwardly I felt frustration rise. Even without my protection, spirits were still confusing. I didn't know if they meant tomorrow in the waking world or something longer. Will he help me? Or can you tell me what the symbols in the temple mean? I asked. It was a tricky question, but I wanted to know. I hoped the offerings I'd left were enough for these spirits. Batuk has his part in the story. The bird stepped backwards into the water and disappeared. I still felt dizzy from the speaking lights. Go where you are called. I closed my eyes and listened. The dream carried its own music, a vibrating thrum. I listened harder, wondering how to find what or who was calling me. I felt myself being pulled backward and falling. White wounds appeared in the dream around me. They gathered together to make a web, surrounded by a roiling shadow. I recoiled away, wishing I still had my necklace. When I landed in the web, it disappeared. I was in a jungle with hills and valleys. I lived on flatlands in the belly, but there were hills and valleys days away. Again, I was hovering in the air. There was a stone temple rising from the growth, tall, with steep steps leading to an enclosed platform. I flew closer to see what was calling me. Flies were buzzing around the platform. I looked close and saw a bowl of dark liquid in an intricately arranged altar. It was surrounded by carvings of different animals, a bird, a jaguar, a turtle, serpents. Ashes encircled other offerings, a long braid of black hair, seeds, water, a small bowl filled with burning oil cast its light. I hovered closer. There was a scent rising from the bowl, another memory I couldn't place. Peering down, I saw my own face reflected in the liquid. It was blood. I opened my mouth to gasp and my reflection did the same. The mouth and the reflection swallowed the entire bowl, the entire night. Everything went dark. I landed back in my body. It was deep night, silent before insects and wind. I pulled my blanket tighter around me, breathing deeply until I was calm again. you write The Lost Dreamer for? Oh, I wrote it for probably every version of myself that I've ever been. And I wrote it for, I mean, I think I wrote it for my ancestors. I wrote it for so many people within my lineage who had to survive chaos and pain or destruction that I can't even comprehend for me to be here. And I wrote it for younger Liz I mean, Liz at every age in her life, probably. I wrote it for myself that this is a story about about family and trust and possibility and pain and, you know, a lot of depression and anxiety. Both my protagonists experience depression and anxiety and different traumas. And I think we all do as humans. And I wanted to honor all those versions of myself and to honor my ancestors who went through some things so that I could be here today. 
And if that speaks to others, even better. What advice do you have for budding writers, especially women and people of color? I would say trust yourself that you're a storyteller. You're, you know more than you know. I think that the world is always trying to kind of get us down and tell us that we don't have the experience or the ability to do these things. But we're born storytellers. Every single human being is. We're made of our stories. And I think find your community whatever that looks like. I found it through attending a lot of writing workshops and going to open mics. And it requires support. Writing is very solitary. And I didn't necessarily find people to workshop my work with, but I found people to um, talk about the journey with, talk about the process. And a lot of my friends became successful before I did. And luckily, I'm not a jealous person, so I was always very happy for them. And through the years, those friendships, I may have friends who've been publishing for 15 years and have been very successful, and they've offered me advice, they've offered me connections, they've offered me help. I think that the pool of writers when I was in my early 20s, around my age, was huge. There was so many of us. And through the years, it kind of dwindled down to those of us who could stick it out, because it isn't an easy industry. It isn't an easy craft. It requires a lot of delving and perseverance. And I stuck it out and I sold my first book when I was 40. And luckily, I have a few really great writer friends who've been doing this for a long time, who've offered me incredible advice over the years on how to do this and offered me opportunities. You know, if there's something they can't do, they'll be like, hey, I had this editor call me, but I can't do this piece. Do you want it? I'm like, absolutely. And so I think, um, don't do it for building the network. Network is such a dirty kind of word, but the community does help. Find your community um, because you're going to need it. I mean, how many friends have I called in the middle of the night having existential crises about my writing? And I've answered the phone in the middle of the night for people going through the same thing. What would you like folks to take away from your book? Is there like a greater message for activists looking to change the world? I think the the big takeaway is, as I said earlier, is to trust the story that you're living and to realize that even when we're in chaos, when we're in trauma, we're in pain, we're in these political moments of unrest as we have been for years now, that our stories are much longer than we can imagine. And they're interconnected in ways that are so vast and intricate with other stories. And we can't always see the bigger picture, but we have to trust that the story we're we're living will give us what we need eventually. And to, to have boundaries. I think my characters, both my protagonists, have to learn boundaries. They have to learn to trust themselves, which isn't always easy in any world. So to trust the story that you're living and to trust yourself is probably the biggest message. That's going to do it for today's episode, as well as the Books for Good Trouble podcast series. I'd like to thank our guest, Liz Huerta. Also, major thanks to Sonida de la Frontera, Planet B, and DJ Peanuts for allowing us to use their music throughout our series of podcasts. For more information on the Books for Good Trouble series of programs, visit us at sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast. 
This project is supported by the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services under the provisions of the Library Services and Technology Act, administered in California by the state librarian.